and welcome to episode five we're at now of AI and You with uh, David George. Before we start, I'd just like to say we are recording this particular episode at the beginning of June 2023. The AI world is moving so fast that anything we're talking about now is relevant for when we're recording it and things may change by the time you actually listen to it. So please bear that in mind uh, while you're listening to the programme. Um, hello, David. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much, Mark. Good. Have you had a busy time in the last couple of weeks? Yes, I have indeed. Yes. <laughs> Doing lots and lots of work and research. Yeah, well, there's been a, a lot of work, you know, on product, you know, my, my recommended system, Product Choice Master. Choice Master. So right. Keeping me very busy. Good. That's good. Busy is good. This week, we're going to talk about responsible AI. There's been a lot of talk in the papers and, and on the television about, is AI something that we can rely on? Is it responsible? Who is regulating it? What are the potential harms of uh, generative AI, do you think, David? Well, there are a number, but I think we need to just um, put some things into, into context. It's quite important to note that um, the risks associated with uh, generative AI, of which of which there have been many now that have been uh, been discussed on, in the newspapers and on the TV news programmes. The risks are not inherent in all uses of generative AI, but they do highlight concerns and challenges um, associated with its ongoing deployment um, and development. And there are a number of harms that we do want, want to consider. I think that um, right now, uh, before we discuss those, though, right now... The, the number of people that are benefiting from generative AI by far <laughs> exceeds those that are being harmed by it. What we need to think about is that these harms, the speed with which they can actually be uh, harmful content, for example, can be can be generated is amplified hundreds and thousands of times. Uh, and so the consequential damages are important to consider. As I say, there are a number of harms that can be considered and Probably top of the list is um, disinformation and fake content, you know, which we've already seen uh, quite a lot of. And then at a, an individual's level, privacy and uh, data protection. The generative AI models are trained on very large data sets that may very well contain personal and sensitive information. And if not properly managed, the use of such models could compromise an individual's privacy and and, uh, and protection of their data. There's also the risk, of course, of unintended data leakage. If the data that the models have been trained on gets hacked and then leaked, and of course, uh, unauthorised use of uh, personal information as a, as a result of that. So looking at it in that context, can, can we trust the developers, the people who are building AI? Can we trust them to, to put the safeguards in? Or is it something that have to be an externally put in, do you think? We need both. Um, we need controls in, internally and externally. There are a number of measures that, that can be applied. And, and I think to answer, answer the question in a, a more of a direct way right now is that, yes, we should trust the, the individual development staff and the organisations that are doing this. We should trust them in the first instance to be responsible themselves in the development and deployment of this technology. Some time ago, there was an open letter signed by a number of developers and people who have been involved in development of AI. And they were concerned about the speed that it was going and the fact that there wasn't the safeguards. I assume that's all part of that same conversation. 
Yes, it is. The production of that letter actually is the root motivator now for all of this discussion. I mean, if the developing organisations themselves were concerned about the speed with which this technology was being deployed and developed uh, is a cause for concern, then we need to sit up and listen to them. Yes. I'd just like to remind you, David has been involved in the AI world since the 1990s. He was one of the first people to help develop it when he was in the United States. So he does know what he's talking about when it comes to this subject. And in that context, in your opinion, how can we ensure responsible AI? Ensure 100% is obviously a, you know, a difficult objective to achieve. You know, ensuring that AI systems are designed to be transparent and accountable involves a number of considerations throughout the whole development process. Uh, Before I go into a little bit more detail about that, uh, the term regulation is being used uh, quite a lot. And we do need the internal regulation within the organisations, developer organisations themselves, and we need external controls that are able to monitor the deployment of these technologies. Internally, looking at it from from a developer's perspective, One of the first things we need to do is make sure we understand how these models are actually being trained, what data is being used. And we need to maintain detailed documentation on the data, its sources, any potential biases that might be inherent in it. If we remember that um, generative AI systems typically have been generated on everything that's been published on the internet, Uh, And that means it will inherently have misinformation and bias embedded within it. So we need to actually um, understand where the data is coming from. That's the very, very first step. The second step is what I would call algorithmic transparency. The algorithms that are actually being used to support these complex neural networking techniques and transformation techniques that are being applied, we've heard the developers themselves saying they don't actually know themselves how these black boxes are working. However, we do know how the algorithms have been designed and that uh, we need to have these uh, very well documented and very well understood. Even if we can't forecast what they're going to predict, uh, we do need to understand exactly how they're working. So far, the development organisations have been reluctant to disclose that for competitive reasons, that they don't want to give away their own internal trade secrets on how these are working um, to give a competitive organisation an unfair advantage, as they say. So if people don't know that the OpenAI version, ChatGTP, only takes information from the internet up to 2021, so there is a big gap which it hasn't strided over yet, uh, but will eventually. So the information already is not necessarily fantastically accurate because of that big gap it has. My other concern regarding this is at some point it will catch up with itself and it will start to draw from stuff that has been AI produced, information that has been AI produced. One of the things I wrote down when I, I read your companion article to this podcast was that With this happening and with the speed that you've already talked about, that this thing will start generating information, will that make AI eventually unreliable because it's creating information data from other AI input? And the example I always think of is the one that we had in, uh, I can't remember, it was episode two maybe, where you put information in about me and it said that I was responsible for the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. Mm. Now, you change a word and it changed the answer. 
But that first answer could have been put on the internet and all of a sudden I'm, according to AI, I'm one of the people responsible for the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. That's one of my concerns and it could eat itself in that context. Yeah, I mean, the example that, that we discussed in that demonstration I gave you in episode two is typical of a lot of disinformation that's actually out there. With respect to, to feeding back Generative AI generated disinformation back into its training data is a is a hot topic. The big um, uh, generative AI developing companies, you know, the Googles of the world and and the Open AIs and the Microsofts, they do have controls about um, restricting generative AI output, feeding that back into the training material. There is an element of control there. Um, and one of the ways in which they do that is they they use um, a technique where there's a human in the loop. The automated controls will flag something that may be deemed to be misinformation, and then a human in the loop will actually make a final decision as to whether it's ethical to put that data back into the system or to disregard it completely. You're sort of starting to answer my next question, which is how can we ensure a certain amount of responsible AI. Are we looking at the developers? Are we looking at the people who are regulating it within the developers? Are we looking at governments to regulate this? If we're going to have a responsible AI, which we would both like to point out is an incredible tool. I've used it for work and, and I know that David has used it a lot. And we're not here to bury AI. We don't want to do that. But what we are doing is looking at the ways that it could be difficult and harmful. And whose responsibility is it? Is it government? Is it the developers? Is it the people within the developers' organisations? Well, it's all of us, Mark. Certainly responsibility lies with the original AI product developers. And then there's a legal framework that's uh, going to be required to uh, regulate and to control it. And then we, as, as the general public, we also have a role in that we need to be involved in the conversation. And, and our concerns, you know, need to be fed back into the developer organisations and into the regulation agencies that are going to end up being responsible. But to ensure responsible AI will involve the need for a comprehensive uh, approach that encompasses various aspects, uh, the development, the deployment and the governance. And some of the key steps would be the definition of an ethical framework and, and guidelines. And those guidelines should be um, prioritising values that we have as human beings, uh, such as fairness, transparency, accountability, privacy, uh, and the general avoidance of harm in respect of bias and the generation of misin misinformation. The data quality and bias problems are fairly well understood, but we must ensure that, that uh, as we mentioned earlier, um, that the sources of the data used to train the models must be very clearly understood and um, recorded because they contain the seeds <laughs> for the generation of harmful output. And we need a sort of a human-centric design so that we as users get the opportunity to provide feedback to the original developers as to whether we agreed with something that was generated on our behalf or, or that we didn't agree with. And um, then there'll be a monitoring process 
as we have in, in medical clinical trials, for example, where feedback is provided, which helps the, the developers of the medication understand what the side effects are and the consequential damage issues of, of that potentially are. So the same philosophies of how do we control something that can potentially cause harm pre-exist. And they just need to be modified and applied in the generative AI space. So looking at it in the context of some sort of guidance, is it the responsibility of governments or is it the responsibility of the industry? Because if it's the responsibility of governments and they legislate, who then, if the rules are broken, is responsible? Is it the developers? Is it the companies? Because you can't obviously prosecute AI. And I think, that for me personally, this is where it becomes quite ambiguous because if they don't even know how their systems work themselves like you talk about this black box who's responsible where does the buck end the responsibility starts with the product developers themselves you're quite right the ai itself can't be held responsible because it's doing what it was trained to do by the development organization so they have the initial responsibility however Self-regulation, as we've seen in the past with the social media platforms, for example, doesn't necessarily uh, work effectively because there's commercial interest involved. So I think um, transparency and explainability are important features of any generative AI product that gets developed to give us as users confidence that what, what we're using it for is not going to cause any consequential damage on anybody else. So the developers need to actually build those types of guardrails into their products, which don't actually currently exist. As you just mentioned, the developers themselves don't actually know how the black box is actually going to perform when it's finally deployed. And so some transparency into the algorithms that are being used uh, is, is pretty important as is this principle of generating explanations. With respect to, say, recommender systems that are using generative AI, apart from just giving a recommendation, it needs to actually explain the basis of that recommendation. This is the data that I, that I used. This is uh, uh, the flow of my reasoning that actually came to a final conclusion, and people will be able to then look at that explanation and actually say, yeah, I agree with this. There's no problem with this. And this is something you're building into the Choice Master Recommender is an explanation and where the information has come from so that people are very aware of how you've come to that recommendation. With respect to Choice Master, there are two very high level but very important aspects to the design of Choice Master. One is it only deals in facts, factual data that it's gathered from data stored on, on the internet in one form or another, or has been provided by authenticated um, sources, or data that's been given to Choice Master directly by the user of the system in the form of what their preferences might be in the decision-making process. But one of the other u unique factors of Choice Master is its ability to provide an explanation where the data source is identified, where the data used is tabulated, and can be verified, and an explanation of its reasoning process as to how it came to its decision. So I think we can say with confidence that Choice Master is very much a responsible use of the AI system. 
Yes, I personally believe that Choice Master is a very responsible AI-based product, yes. And the other thing we'd like to point out about Choice Master as well is it doesn't ask you to log in. It doesn't ask for your email address. It's not taking any personal information from you. All it's doing is asking you questions about the product that you are searching for. So it doesn't store data on you like your supermarket club card would do, for example. It's very much a use it and then you move on and it moves on and never the twain if you never need to use it again. Its original design was to cater for totally anonymous users. Again, in, in the companion article, which, which you can find um, on LinkedIn, on David's LinkedIn, if, you, if you're looking for that, something you put at the end, this is artificial intelligence, not artificial intellect. Can you explain that statement? I, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I think I know what you mean, but um, tell me what you think you mean. <laughs> Okay, I'll tell you what I think I mean, yes. (laughs) Um, I mean, a generally accepted definition of intelligence, be it human intelligence or artificial intelligence, is the ability to, amongst other, is to acquire skills, acquire knowledge, and then apply that knowledge. And we can see that generative AI and other forms of of AI um, have the ability to do that. If we believe that um, reading the Encyclopedia Britannica, for example, and then being able to answer any question <laughs> that is, where the answer to that is contained within the, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica is acquiring knowledge and in being able to then apply that in terms of answering the questions, then that's a form of intelligence. But intellect is something um, different. Intellect is the ability to think um, and to reason and to understand. (laughs) So not just the ability to apply the knowledge you may have got from reading the encyclopedia, it's the ability to think about it, apply some critical thinking capability and to understand what you've just read. So there's a, a difference. And current AI systems don't have any intellect associated with them. I mean, for example, if we, if we read something that is disinformation, we can reason about what we're reading and we can come to a conclusion that, yes, this is actually not good, it's bad. You know, this is not positive, it's negative. The generative AI systems don't actually understand those concepts. A generative AI system like, like ChatGPT doesn't know when it's generating output content whether it's good or bad. It's just generating output content. Again, you've explained to me how it works. Basically, it's putting one word after another word yes. and predicting what the word should be yes. in context of the prompt that it is given in the first place. Yes. So it's not applying any reason. It's just literally producing information. In content generation context, yes, that's exactly all it's doing. However, the later versions of ChatGPT, for example... What, what version are we on at the moment? Four are we on at yeah, the moment? GPT-4. Yeah, GPT-4. Uh, yeah. But they come out... Uh, that major release will come out with, you know, periodic updates to it. They're very good at doing what is simulated reasoning insofar as question and answering capabilities uh, are concerned. You can notice a degree of reasoning 
capability in the conversations that you can have where awareness and attention is being paid to previous answers that you've given. And so the contextual discussion can continue, which is a form of of a reasoning process. So it's constantly learning all the time in the same way that your Alexa would be learning how you say things and what you say. Yeah, there is that level of of learning. We we mentioned earlier that uh, that uh, GPT, for example, its training was cut off at September 2021. But there, forgive the jargon, but there are techniques called single shot and few shot learning that can be applied, you know, when you're interacting, having a dialogue with the products. And they will temporarily, at least during the course of that conversation, they will learn anything you may have offered, any new information you've offered them. So it's constantly updating itself, basically, constantly learning as, only, as you are using it. Only for the course of that session. Oh, right. So when that's finished, that's that. When that session is over, then that's gone. If you were to log in again and try to continue the conversation, you wouldn't be able to. It doesn't have that sort of memory. The need for regulation and controls, what's what's your feeling about that? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, regulation and control is, is most certainly required and has been acknowledged by the business leaders in the tech industry and by senior politicians and governments um, globally now. I would just like to make a point about that. You originally mentioned the the original Elon Musk-inspired letter calling for greater controls. I think uh, what's important here is that the controls are not, uh, regulations are not implemented to stifle the development of the technology, which can have a lot of, lots and lots and lots of advantages and benefits to society at large, but more on the deployment side of it. Because, you know, what we don't want to do is over-regulation will just stifle innovation, you know, which it doesn't advantage, uh, give a, an advantage to anybody. So there's a fine balance that needs to, be, uh, needs to be implemented. There is so much more we could talk about on this subject, and we will in future episodes. I'm really hoping that our discussion here has made you think about it. If there's any comments you'd like to make, if you'd like to ask David anything, what's the best way to get in contact with you, David? Uh, the best way is um, is on my email, david at choicemaster.org. We will be back in a, in a couple of weeks' time with, an, with another episode. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Thank you very much for your time, David. It's always great to speak to you. Always interesting as well. Uh, if you do want to get in touch with him again, david at choicemaster.org is the best way to uh, email him and ask him any questions about AI, about Choice Master and about any of the things we've been talking about in this or any of the uh, previous episodes. Thank you, David, for your time. And uh, we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you very much, Mark. Take care. This is a 1386 audio production. 